much fun. Easter was just such a great victory for our Bolingbrook campus and their public grand opening and for all of you at 95th Street, just a huge win. And I just had so much joy coming out of Easter. And then wouldn't you know, our week uh, took a real unexpected and very difficult turn. My my father-in-law passed away this week. My, My wife's husband died on Wednesday morning, very unexpectedly, his name was Harold Giannopoulos. Uh, can we put his picture up? And uh, he was really dad to me, a physician. I always called him Dr. G when I was growing up. But when I got married, he looked at me and he goes, Jeffrey, I am dad to you. And I've been calling him dad ever since, and he truly has been a dad to me. Really crazy He cheered on his Cubs to a victory on Tuesday night, and on Wednesday morning he woke up, had breakfast and coffee, took a shower, and we suspect had a massive heart attack because he fell down and died. And so it has been just immensely difficult as my wife and I uh, process the first of our parents to pass, and uh, tomorrow I will be officiating the funeral of my father-in-law, and when I do, I am going to proclaim him to be a great man. You know, the world may not call him great. He wasn't famous, wasn't on the cover of magazines, probably won't be remembered uh, decades from now except by family and a few friends, but I believe that he's great. I'm convinced his greatness inspired me, and you may say, Jeff, why do you say Great. Well, the greatness that I saw in my father-in-law was, well, for one, his love for Jesus. You know, our mission statement of a church is to love him more. And I will tell you, it was obvious to all that the single obsession of dad's life was Jesus Christ. He was consumed with affection for Jesus. But what made him great was also that he reflected the very character of Jesus. You know, character is part of what makes someone great. And my father-in-law was one of the most kindest, soft-hearted human beings, loving human beings you will ever meet. I've been bombarded with emails and texts of people saying that. I never met a more gentle-spirited man. My wife swears by this. She says, Jeff, I never saw my dad lose his temper even once. He never raised his voice to me. And my kids spoke up, we'll never say that about you, dad. And I'm like, oh, thanks. <laughs> what made him great 
was his impact in this world. Uh, he was a radiologist at Northwest Community Hospital for his whole career. And uh, you may say, well, doctors do it for the money. Not this guy. When he retired, he continued to serve as a doctor for free as a volunteer at the Lawndale Christian Medical Clinic nearly full-time for 15 years. He poured his heart into serving those people. And we kept on telling him, Dad, retirement means like shuffleboard, you know. And he's like, no. He's like, I have a skill. And some poor people need what I have, and I can give it to them free. And so I'm going to do it. And he poured himself into the, the Wednesday morning when he died. He was getting ready to go to a pediatrics conference so he could learn more and be a better volunteer doctor to the people in need. Just blew me away. A woman uh, after church one day came up to me and said, wait a minute, you mentioned your father-in-law. Is he Dr. Harold Giannopoulos? I'm like, yeah. She said, he led me to Jesus years ago. She said, I was a nurse at his hospital, and he invited me into a seeker's Bible study that he was doing, and I joined it, and I found Jesus Christ. My life has been forever changed. That's what makes a person great. Love of God, character, impact. So we're going to talk about greatness. Some of you uh, wonder, you know, will I, you know, your funeral's coming too. Will I be celebrated as great at my funeral? Will I be remembered by people? Most importantly, will I be remembered by God as being a great person? Some of you may say, I don't even feel comfortable with aspiring to greatness. I'm not sure we're supposed to want to be great. Well, you're right. In the world's eyes, you know, chasing after greatness as the world sees it, that shouldn't be our objective. But spiritual greatness, Christ-likeness is what the Bible calls it. Yeah, that's our goal. Our goal is to grow. The, the, The scriptures talk about a process called sanctification. Have you heard that term? Sanctification means growth and holiness. It means becoming, by the power of God at work in you, a better person. It's true. God loves us so much that he accepts us just as we are, but he loves us so much that he can't leave us where we are. He wants to grow us. And so we become a Christian, bring in our sin and brokenness just as we are. But once we become a Christian, the Lord lovingly puts his arms around us and says, now let's enter a life of growth. And so, yes, we should aspire to greatness in God's eyes. We should go after growing. If you're the same person you were 10 years ago, something's wrong. We should be growing more and more all the time. A little word about our art logo here for the series. This is the Vitruvian Man by Leonardo da Vinci. Have you seen that guy before? Leonardo da Vinci was a unique individual. He was both an artist and a scientist. And in fact, he drew this sketch for medical journals. It was his hope that science and medicine would use these for uh, studying anatomy. It's so interesting. Da da Vinci actually dissected over 30 human cadavers in order to understand the, the ideal anatomy of the human being. And in fact, this guy is to represent the ideal male specimen. 
In fact, the circle and the square are all part of showing his perfect proportions. And you can tell he's pretty fit. He's ripped and cut, you know, like some of you and not like others of us. (laughs) And so uh, da Vinci uh, created this both to illustrate the ideal and to provide a place to study anatomy. Anatomy is looking at the parts to understand what makes the perfect whole. And that's what the series is all about. Not physical perfection, but spiritual growth, spiritual greatness. We want to see greatness and then look at the anatomy of it. What are the parts that contribute to somebody being great in God's eyes? And the person we're going to analyze is John the Baptist. You know, John, have you studied him much? Well, you're about to. John the Baptist was a relative of Jesus Christ. In fact, their moms, Jesus' mom was Mary and John's mom was Elizabeth, they were relatives and they were pregnant with their boys at the same time. There's some scripture that describes the friendship that they shared during that season of pregnancy. And John began his public ministry before Jesus began his. And John did so to prepare the way for Jesus Christ, to start preaching and getting the people ready for the coming of the Messiah. And John was great. Don't take my word for it. Take Jesus' word for it. Jesus said in Luke 7, verse 28, I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. Wow. How's that for a compliment? Huh? And you say, well, it's only those who are born of women. That was a poetic way of saying everybody, all right? Of everybody, the imaginable. Jesus said, I know. Christ knew the heart of people. He knows everything. And in his great knowledge, he spoke with authority and said, I'm telling you, John is extraordinary. Rises above all. And so in doing so, Jesus is calling us to study John. He's inviting us to look at this man, learn how it is that he reflects true greatness, learn how it is he became truly great. And through our study of John, we will grow. This first week, we're going to look at his lifestyle. Why his lifestyle? Because John had a weird, I'll just call it weird lifestyle. He was an odd duck. And some of the peculiar choices of the way John lived actually, as we're about to find out, contributed to him becoming so extraordinary. So you ready to study his lifestyle? I I should warn you, uh, since we're going to be trying to look at the vast majority of Scripture as it relates to John the Baptist, it's going to require us to jump around a little. My typical style is focusing in on a singular text. But in order to better understand John, there's going to be some flipping. So if you're one who reads along in the Bible, uh, lick your fingers and get them ready to turn the pages because we're going to do a lot of it. Luke 1, verse 15. Before I read it, let me just give you the context. This is before John the Baptist was born. God, through an angel, brought a prophetic message to John's dad, Zechariah. And so this is what God is saying through the angel. He, John the Baptist, he will be great in the sight of the Lord. 
He is never to take wine or other fermented drink. All right, how about that? First of all, he will be great. Let's highlight that. Great in the sight of the Lord. You know, we shouldn't be surprised that Jesus declared him great because God, through his foreknowledge, could see even before John was born that this guy is going to be amazing. He is going to be great. Now, again, great in the sight of the Lord. We are not studying human perspective on greatness. If you had met John, you had kind of rolled your eyes at him and first thought, this is a strange person. But if you had gotten to know him, you would have seen the quality that God identifies as great. Uh, What does this say? It says, he is never to take wine. Uh, John voluntarily chose to abstain from all alcohol. There was an Old Testament vow called the Nazarite vow. God does not forbid alcohol. But some were voluntarily choosing to abstain from all alcohol as an expression of their devotion to Jesus Christ. They were called Nazarites in the Old Testament. And theologians believe that John the Baptist reflected that Nazarite vow tradition, right? This is kind of interesting. This singular verse tells us two things. Great in the sight of God, chose to take a pass, chose to abstain from alcoholic beverages. Is there a connection between self-abstaining or choosing to deny yourself, self-denial, and greatness? Is there a connection between lifestyle choices to just deny yourself certain things? and say, you know what, I'm going to take the hard road and say no. Is there a connection between that self-denial and greatness? I believe there is. As we continue to study John, you're going to notice this theme of John choosing the hard road, the choice of discipline, of, of spiritual disciplines that I believe contributed significantly to the greatness he achieved. In fact, let's go to the next verse. Uh, Luke 1, verse 80. This is a verse that describes John's earliest years, his transition from childhood to his teenage years. The child, that's John, grew and became strong in spirit. And he lived in the wilderness until he appeared publicly to Israel. And so the child grew. He became strong in spirit. Let's let's highlight that. What does it mean to be strong, spiritually strong? Well, that's what it means to be great in God's eyes. Spiritual strength is when you, when you reflect Jesus, when there's a holiness, a beauty, a quality to your life that is remarkable. And that's what John had. Now, one little note, he became strong in spirit. He wasn't always strong in spirit. This is something he grew into, gives hope for all of us. We can grow into it, too. It says that he lived in the wilderness. I've been to the wilderness in Israel. It's a desert, barren land, beautiful sand, hills, but very little water, very little vegetation. It's a hard place to live. And yet, in John's day, in Jesus' day, there were a number of believers who chose to move away from the hecticness of urban life and seek A life, a hard life, but a life in the desert where there was space to grow. 
And I mean grow spiritually. In fact, uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls, maybe you've heard of them before. They were written, it's copies of scripture and other writings, written by desert dwellers back in Jesus' day who were down by the Dead Sea in a community called Qumran. Some scholars actually believe John the Baptist may have been a part of that community. We'll never know until we get to heaven. But clearly it was that type of a movement in John's heart where he said, I need to get away from the craziness of urban life. And I need to find space to think, to slow down. I need silence so I can pray, so I can hear God, so I can study the scriptures. Uh, This is the spiritual discipline of solitude. Let's put that down. Solitude. You say, well, am I supposed to move to the wilderness? You know, go to Arizona and seek the desert? Uh, No, Uh, please don't. Uh, Stay here, but seek solitude here. You know, we too run the risk of having our lives so busy in the hecticness of suburban life, so busy that we're going a mile a minute, and you know what? Busy, hurried people tend to be thin, shallow people. We need to make space to grow. We need to find time for solitude and prayer and Bible study and listening to God's Spirit speaking to us. If we don't choose to make solitude time in our day, we will miss out. John understood this. And he pursued the desert because wilderness living leads to strength and spirit. Next verse. It says in Luke 7, verse 33, that John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine. We've already talked about the wine part, abstaining from alcohol. But here, now it's getting crazy. No bread. I love bread. What is he thinking? Well, once again, this is not a command of God, but a choice of John. John said, maybe John loved bread too. And John said, you know, it would be good for me to do what is called a partial fast. Let's put that down. A partial fast is when you voluntarily choose to abstain from some beverage or some type of food in order to deny your fleshly cravings, your hunger. A full fast is when people actually go without any food for part of a day, a whole day, multiple days. I wonder if you've tested fasting. And you say, no, that's crazy. Why would I do that? Here's why. Sometimes by denying the, the, the exercise of denying your hunger, you're teaching your body that, you know what, you don't always get your way. Sometimes, you know, we are so soft. We're like, oh, I, I felt the tingle. You know, and whenever we have any desire, inclination, we just jump in and give in. And fasting is a way of teaching the body that, you know what, you don't always get your way. And then when temptation comes your way, you've been trained in self-denial, and you're able to, with the help of God, stand up and say, no, I'm not going to do that. And so partial fast, another form of exercise, sometimes they're called spiritual disciplines, that John engaged in. Spiritual disciplines are like exercises of the soul. You know exercises of the body that make your body strong. Spiritual disciplines are exercises of the soul that make the soul strong. Solitude, one of them. 
Partial fast, just examples. Here's another, Matthew 3, verse 4. It says, John's clothes were made of camel's hair. He had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. Allow me to clarify that camel's skin and hair wrapped over his shoulders, this is a very primitive attire. This desert, dirty desert-dwelling guy appeared publicly, and he had this animal skin thrown over his shoulder and just wrapped a leather belt around it. And, you know, to people who liked fine attire with patterns stitched into things, this guy looked, you know, like a barbarian. Let's call it simplicity. Simplicity is choosing to... Take a pass on the materialistic lifestyle of our culture. John looked around and he said, I know everybody thinks that finely woven clothes are necessary and fine meals are essential. And he ate bugs, locusts dipped in honey. And John's like, you know, it's all I need. And you're like, no, no, John, you need more. You know, have you had soft serve ice cream? You know, John, you're... And, and he's like, I don't need it. I don't need it. Now, are we to go around wearing a rug, you know, with a belt around? No. But we are to ask the question, Lord, what simplicity are you leading me into? You know, the culture says you must have this or you have nothing. You've got to dress like this. You've got to own that or the other. You've got to have this experience or that. And sometimes God says, no, you don't. Just say no. Choose a simple lifestyle. It's a way of growing in your commitment to embrace the value system of God and not by hook, line, and sinker the materialistic message of our culture. And this is a simplicity, choosing the simple life in the way the Spirit of God might lead you is a great spiritual discipline that forms the soul. So when John you know, arrived publicly to do ministry. He was dirty as a desert dweller, and he was wearing, you know, this big skin wrap, and his, he had some bugs in his teeth still, and people were like, eh. Jesus is like, get to know the guy. Because these lifestyle choices he has made have formed him, and there is a beauty to his heart that is unmatched in the world. And we're going to get to know him. So, the thing I want to talk about that John engaged in, this, these spiritual disciplines, I want to call it cooperative sanctification. Big terms today. What is cooperative sanctification? Well, we've already said sanctification is the process of growing spiritually. It's becoming more like Jesus. It's, it's becoming great. And it's cooperative because both God and we have a role in becoming great. Some people forget that God has a role, and that would be a big mistake. You cannot grow without God. Let me just say it. You cannot become great in God's eyes. You cannot reflect the greatness of Jesus or John the Baptist without God's help. It is essential to be reconciled to God through Christ, to be filled with God's Spirit. And we need to say, Spirit of God in me, help me change. If you you try to just say, I'm going to practice all these exercises and I'm going to get great on my own, you're going to fail. 
God's role and his power through the Holy Spirit is essential. But some people make the mistake on the other extreme, and that is, God's going to change me. It's automatic sanctification. I just kind of sit on the couch, and he just does it. No, you have a role too. You've got to engage in these spiritual disciplines, these exercises, if you're going to grow. It's cooperative. And so, how can we? How can we grow? Uh, We're going to talk about our role. And one of the big mistakes people make about our role is they think that our role is to try harder. God's role, he brings the power uh, to be like Jesus. We just need to try to be like Jesus more. And trying is not nearly as needed as training. And let me explain the difference. I'll use an example. Uh, A few years back, I went out west with a bunch of friends, and we went skiing, and we did NASTAR racing. Do you know what NASTAR is? NASTAR is where you pay to get timed to see how fast you can go through a track. There's a track of these flags, and you have to weave around them. And as me and my buddies went to do NASTAR, they were all like, oh, Griffin's going to whoop us again. And I'm like, you're right, I'm going to. Years ago, with the same group of friends, I had done NASTAR, and I had beat them all soundly. And so I was hailed as the champion, the fastest skier of our group of friends. But it had been years, but I was still going to whoop them. So I got up there, you know, and I, I did the first race. And two guys beat me. Their times were better than mine. I was horrified. And I said, that's it. Back on the chairlift. We're going up and doing it again. I'll pay, but we're doing it again. And I was like, man, I can't let that happen. I've got to try harder. And the second time we did the race, this time three guys beat me. And I demanded a third time, get on the chairlift, we're doing again. And I'm like, Griffin, don't let the, this can't be happening. You're falling off your throne, buddy. This cannot be happening. And after losing again, I realized trying harder is not going to help. You know what the problem was? Okay, here we go. Those guys were all fitness animals. They had been exercising with great passion. And over the years, my physical fitness was a bit on a decline, if you know what I mean. And as a result, I realized this is not a matter of trying harder. This is a matter of training. And that's the problem with us as Christians. Sometimes we think, all I got to do is try harder. You know, Jeff preaches on patience, and I'm going to go, I'm going to be more patient. And then we lose our temper. And we're like, ah. And you can go try to be like Jesus, but if you don't live like Jesus lived, you'll never be able to do what Jesus did. If you don't live like John the Baptist lived, you'll never be able to do what he did. If you don't train you won't win. And so trying versus training is, is an important distinction. And just willpower is not going to get you the life of Christ. You must engage in the spiritual disciplines or the training that will get you that win. One of the, my favorite books on this topic is by John Ortberg. It's called The Life You've Always Wanted. It's all about cooperative sanctification and it's about these spiritual disciplines, this training 
of the soul. And he has a great quote in it I'd like to read to you at this time. John says, you must arrange your life around certain practices, those are the spiritual disciplines, that will enable you to do what you cannot do now by willpower alone. Do you see that? Through training, you will get stronger and become a person who can live increasingly like Jesus. Trying harder willpower is not enough. Training is essential. One of the things that we're discovering here is that the way we live, those lifestyle choices we make, are having an effect on who we are inside. We are more malleable than we want to admit. You, to a degree, are a product of your lifestyle. The way you live and those practices you choose to engage in, uh, they affect you. Another way of saying it is that first we make our habits, and then our habits make us. Do you see that? In fact, here, here's a little exercise for you to do. I challenge you. You can ignore this homework assignment. You know, I'm not coming after you. But I would challenge you to do this. It will serve you well. Sometime this week, take a piece of paper or maybe a prayer journal and write good habits on one side, bad habits on the other side. And just prayerfully consider your routine, your daily routine. Lord, what are those things that I do that are good habits that contribute to my life? Well, you're doing one right now, uh, 95th Street Campus and at Bolingbrook and here at Hobson. You're at church. That is a good habit that is formative in helping you become like Jesus. So there will be some things that are good habits in your life, and there may be some things where you're like, you know, that probably is not constructive to my spiritual formation. And it may be that upon analyzing your good habits and your bad habits, you feel convicted that some new good habits need to be started, some spiritual disciplines need to be begun, and some bad ones need to go. I'll give you an example of how this worked in Jen and I about a year ago. Jen and I had a bad habit. It's not an evil habit. It wasn't a sinful habit. It just wasn't helpful. And the habit was watching TV right before we fell asleep. Uh, we, we would sit there and watch maybe the news for a little bit or some sitcom and chuckle a little bit and then turn it off and fall asleep. And we were like, you know, I don't know that this is the best soul-forming ritual. And Jenna and I decided a year ago to just cut out this little habit. And instead of watching a little TV, we're going to read a little book. Uh, she and I each read. We sit in the bed. Uh, Jen, both Christian books. Jen loves certain Christian authors that bless her soul. I love Christian biographies. I'm obsessed with the drama of life story as God works in various people. And so for like 20 minutes, Jen reads her Christian book. I read my Christian book. And then we close our books and give her a kiss goodnight. And we have our moment of prayer and we drift off to sleep. This change of lifestyle has served my soul well. It's also helped our sleep get a lot better. And folks, it's stuff like that, that the Spirit of God can prompt. It's not evil. It's not sin, maybe. It's just not helpful. And there are better uses of your time. Maybe it's turning off sports radio and putting in a worship song instead. 
Little things like that God may lead you to that will be more formative of your soul than you might realize. First we make our habits, and then our habits make us. So do that exercise. God, to what degree am I a product of the things I do and the lifestyle I have? And to what degree, God, would you like to change that? So that by your spirit, working cooperatively with my spiritual disciplines, I can become a better woman, a better man. All right, well, that said, let me close by returning one more time to my father-in-law, my beloved second dad. You know, Harold was great. He was great, and I described his greatness to you, and that begs the question, did he have spiritual disciplines that contributed to his great? You say, maybe he was just born great. Maybe it was just DNA. Maybe it was just the Spirit of God at work. Maybe he had no part in it. Well, that wouldn't be biblical, and I also know it's not true. Harold was a man of great spiritual discipline. His, his greatest discipline was regarding the Bible. In fact, he studied the Bible voraciously. Though he was a busy man, being a doctor is very time-consuming, and being a dad of three kids, very time-consuming, and yet he made sure he had time every day in his study for time in the scriptures. In fact, let me show you his study. Right Here's his basement office. Look at all those books. You say, well, man, they must be all medical journals. No, he had a closet where he kept all his medical journals. Every single book you see there are biblical commentaries and theological volumes. In fact, these cabinets, I should have opened them, all below, it's packed with, with biblical reference books. I'm a pastor. I'm like a professional. My doctor father-in-law had more biblical books than I do. And you say, you didn't tell me he was a preacher. He never preached. You didn't tell me he was a teacher. Never taught. This was all for his personal edification and growth. Isn't that incredible? You know, I have Harold's Bible, or one of his many Bibles right here. And I can show it to you, but it's more helpful if I just flip through it. So let's go to a little video. I grabbed my iPhone, and I just shot myself flipping through his Bible randomly just to demonstrate to you the measure, the level of notes that he took in the margins of his Bible, the level of underlining and study, just a glimpse into the hours of meditation on Scripture that characterized this man's life, I think are evident uh, just by the extensive notes found in this book. Harold believed that the practices I daily engage on will be formative in who I become. And therefore, he found those spiritual disciplines that matched who God made him to be, and he passionately pursued them. And as a result became great. Spirit of God's going to lead you to change your routines and to become like my father-in-law, like John the Baptist, like Jesus. Shall we pray? Lord, we don't want to change. Or we don't, I mean, we don't want to stay the same. We do want to change. We're sick and tired of stagnating, seeing years pass without 
progress. Lord, we want to bring a smile to your eye, to your face by becoming, by growing to be more like Jesus. We want to engage in cooperative sanctification. Lord, we've been too passive and too thoughtless in our lifestyle and disciplines. We want that to change. God, this week, I pray you'd help us to sit down and take a look at our lifestyle and ask the question, how is what we're, how we're living forming who we are? Spirit of the living God, guide my friends. Point out those bad habits that are having a negative or worthless effect on their soul. Lead them to good habits, God, please. Give them the, the wisdom to not start too, too much, but to start a few and give them the discipline to follow through and help us all grow to be more and more great. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.